please turn with me in your Bible this morning for our scripture reading as we continue our series of studies during these months of March and April in the book of Acts. And this morning we're turning to Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And you'll find it on page 1696, page 1696 of the Church Bible. Over the last couple of weeks, we have been steadily making our way through these early chapters of Acts. And three weeks ago, when we began, we looked at the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and the impact that that had. And so this morning, we're coming to Acts chapter 4, and we're about to see one of the great sections of these opening chapters as Peter and James are challenged by the religious authorities of their day about their faith. And so they have been preaching in the temple, and I'll explain the context in a little greater detail as we come to explore the passage this morning, and the priests and elders and teachers of the law interrupt them. And so that gives you the context as we come to chapter 4, verse 1. Priests... The captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. And they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John and because it was evening they put, him in jail, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name you did this. And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, by whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. And salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note these men had been with Jesus. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. From time to time, I think most of us, as we grow and develop and mature in our faith, will find ourselves in challenging positions. And sometimes that will be a situation at work, a situation at home, a situation we come across in our neighborhood. And other times we'll be challenged by something someone says or a question that is asked. And that is exactly the situation that James and John find themselves here in chapters 3 and 4 of the book of Acts. 
And chapters 3 and 4 are a single incident where Peter and John have been on their way to prayer about 3 in the afternoon. They see a man who regularly sits at the temple gate. He has been crippled since birth. And as Peter moves towards him, they take him by the hand and they pray for him and say, In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise. And as he stands on his feet, A supernatural event takes place. A miracle happens. And he is given back the power of his legs. And the people who know him, because he's been sitting there year after year, begging for money, he has no other way to make a livelihood, they are, of course, impacted by this miracle. And they begin to ask, what on earth has happened? And then they turn to Peter and John and say, how did you manage to do this? And Peter and John begin to speak to them and explain to them the gospel, the power of the risen Christ, the impact he has on lives. And they quite naturally explain the love and grace of God to those who were listening. And it created such a fuss that the temple guards, along with the high priest, and as we see in verse 1, the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came to Peter and John and said, What have you done? What on earth is going on? And so they find themselves in a situation where they are subsequently arrested and spend an evening in prison. And the point I'm trying to make in the midst of all of that is from time to time you will find yourself in a challenging situation. Sometimes, as we said moments ago, it's circumstances, something happens in your life and you begin to ask, Lord, why on earth would you do that at this time in my life? What are you teaching me? What are you doing? Other times you will come across a challenge that is slightly different. And slightly different in this sense, the challenge will be something that is controversial or sensitive or someone will challenge your faith, telling you that is out of touch with nothing to offer. Sure, we used to believe in Christianity several generations ago, but life in a 21st century setting, no, not so much. And so how do you respond to that situation? And we'll look a little at how John and Peter responded. And then we'll also ask, how do you respond to challenging and difficult situations in a 21st century setting? Now remember the wider context of the passage we're coming to. Three weeks ago, we looked at the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And I said at that point, it was a game changer in every sense, because now the apostles experienced for themselves the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. And we see it worked out here in Acts chapter 4. And then last week, we looked at some of the principles of being a lively, dynamic, growing, maturing congregation of people. And we saw those principles from the first century. And last Sunday morning in chapter 2, we said that those principles were that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe. And we saw that last week. 
And then as chapter 3 developed, which we didn't read this morning, what we discovered was that when the passerbys in the temple noticed that the man had been healed, they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. And you can imagine the impact that they had. And of course, as the priests and temple guards arrive, they say, of course, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and Sadducees came up to Peter and John when they were speaking, and they were greatly disturbed. Notice the language that Luke is using. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And right there at the very center of the gospel message is the resurrection. The four weeks today, of course, we'll celebrate with great joy and wonder Easter Sunday. And we see the centrality of the resurrection in the proclamation of the gospel. And we know it to be true in our own lives as well. And as the passage develops, we begin to realize, of course, Peter and John arrested, spend an evening in prison, and once they begin to explain what happened, they finish their defense with two of the best-known verses in these early chapters of Acts. And that's saying something, because there's so much in the book of Acts. And they finish their defense by saying of Christ, salvation is found in no one else. In other words, there's an excuse exclusiveness about a relationship with Christ and all he has accomplished for us. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note, these men had been with Jesus. Now, if you take notes in your Bible or put a little tick in the margin, that's a verse you want to put a little tick against, simply because of the closing words. They were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. That's the point of this passage. That not only had he risen from the dead... Not only had he given to them the indwelling enabling of his Holy Spirit, but they were spending time with him and walking with him. And they were growing and maturing in their faith. Their lives were changing and they were beginning to sense the power and enabling grace of God at work in their lives. Now, you may be here this morning and saying, okay, Richard, I hear what you're saying. I think I understand what you're saying. I think I've got it. But my question this morning is this. How does all of this in the first century relate to a 21st century setting? Richard, I hear you say in a Sunday morning about the importance of living out our faith in a 21st century cultural context. But Richard, what does that mean? Give me an example of how I live out my faith. Help me understand what's taking place here. So I can take what I've heard this morning, which I'm full agreement with, and then apply it to my life this week. What difference does it make to me? Let me suggest this. The first thing we need to be aware of is this. That from Pentecost 
onward with the coming of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling, enabling, empowering of God himself dwelling in us through his Spirit, he begins to change us. Whenever a person comes into contact with the gospel and they hear of the love and grace of God, And he begins to work in their lives, to call them into a relationship with himself. They begin to change. And they begin to change for this primary reason. Number one, that the cross and the resurrection is no longer simply processed in terms of information. But it is processed and appreciated not simply for information but because that because of its transformation that it brings and it changes us and it creates within us new desires new hopes character honesty accountability integrity begin to matter we develop Uh, moral and supernatural standards that may not have been there before. And suddenly, along with moral and spiritual standards, prayer matters. And we get to know God on a relational and personal basis. From before Pentecost, the disciples will tell you that they had a relationship with Christ, of course. But it moved to a whole new level with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Likewise with us, when we respond to the gospel, we no longer look at Calvary at an emotional level, but we look at it at a relational level because he changes us. It becomes personal. He begins to refine us and shape us and fashion us. And we want to begin to follow him. And that's what's happened with Peter and John, that's what happened to the man who was sitting there at the gate as Peter put his hands on him and held him up. The power of the risen Christ was experienced and he was absolutely, utterly transformed. And all of that is highlighted in our message. Now, having said that, You might be saying, okay, Richard, I understand that. And I understand that God, through the gospel, transforms us and refines us. He changes us. He gives us new appetites. Suddenly we discover a desire for worship. Prayer becomes important. But it also impacts us morally and socially and culturally. Because when we take on a new life in Christ we also take on a new lifestyle. Because we have said often and in subsequent generations from the very moment of the resurrection of Christ, Christians are called to live out an authentic, credible lifestyle. We are called to live in such a manner that our walk equals our talk. In other words, when it comes to things like honesty, integrity, character. We cannot claim one thing on a Sunday morning and then live any old way we like during the week. And that we see in the power of Peter and John. The power of the gospel was at work within them. 
Now, having said all of that, remember how it finished? What did we say? They noted that these men had been with Jesus. The impact of the resurrection, the transforming power of God was at work. Now, having said all of that, allow me please to become a little controversial this morning. Now, we don't set out to be controversial on Sunday morning. I don't set out to deal with sensitive and difficult issues. But from time to time, it seems appropriate because we find a challenge in Scripture. We ask, how does that challenge us? Not simply first century, but also in a 21st century cultural context. And this morning, I'm going to deal with an issue that is incredibly sensitive and controversial, but it's helpful for us as Christians to understand and grasp again if we are genuine and sincere about living out our faith in a 21st century culture, how do we actually do that? Not just in theory, but also in practice. Remember the closing words, these men had been with And this morning as we spend time with him in this service, as we gather around this table and we give thanks for all that he achieved at Calvary, we also say we want to spend time with him in such a way that it impacts, affects our lives and makes us more godly. Grants to us a holiness and a purity of lifestyle that is different from the culture and the world around us. Now when I use that phrase culture, what am I talking about? When I talk about living out your faith in a 21st century culture, what do we mean? Now we touched on this four or five years ago, but it seemed appropriate to draw on it again this morning. So when I'm talking about culture, this is what I'm talking about. Culture is the shared beliefs, values, conventions and practices of a society in which we are taking the raw material and experiences of everyday life and rearranging them to express significance and meaning. Thus we express what we think is the good, the true, the real and the important in life. And so for a Christian, when we live out our faith, we are seeking to make sense of our faith in our daily living, and we are seeking to live and highlight and express that which is good and true and real and important for life. And this morning I want to highlight one of those Uh, areas, or a couple of areas in our life rather, which are controversial and sensitive. And when someone will say to you, now, you go to church. Let me ask a question, and I don't want to be insulting and offensive, and they might say, as I look at Christianity, it really is out of touch with a 21st century lifestyle. It seems that your beliefs are narrow-minded, restrictive. It seems that you don't have much to offer in a 21st century lifestyle. What difference does Christianity make? Because as I look at it, you really are out of touch with nothing. 
day. How do we respond to such a question? Well, let me give you an illustration. Let me make it as practical as I can. And I've mentioned this before, but it's a helpful illustration to make the point. Let's imagine you are visiting family and friends in either Charlotte or Atlanta. And you have stayed longer than you had intended. And given this a bit of a drive, it is now 11.30 and eventually you've enjoyed the evening. You've had a good time with friends. You're now heading back to Greenville. And as you leave them, you thank them again for the meal and the uh, opportunity to catch up. And you start heading north from Atlanta. And as you're on the Atlanta freeway, you take a wrong turning and you take an off-ramp. And then you discover, in fact, that you shouldn't have taken the off-ramp. And it's now about 12.15 in the morning. You are discovered that you're on a road you do not recognize, that there's not much by way of street lighting. There's an old run-down warehouse there and abandoned buildings. And you think, okay, I really need to make a U-turn and get back to the freeway. And then suddenly the car starts to splutter. And you're out of gas. You think, oh. How did I end up like this? Just in case, you pop the hood, you wander around to the front, you open it up, and as you look at it, it's an entire maze of bits and pieces, and you think, oh, good night, what am I going to do? And then you hear a noise, and you look up, and you look behind your vehicle, and approaching is five or six men. And it's now half past midnight, and you think, oh dear. What on earth am I going to do? What's about to happen? Will it make an ounce of difference to you to know that these five men have just come off of the last session in a church men's spiritual retreat or not? Will it make a difference? Of course it makes a difference. Christianity does make a difference. And it makes a difference not simply 1st century, but 21st century as well. And honesty and integrity and character and accountability matter. And they matter in the 21st century every bit as much as they mattered in the 1st century. Our faith does matter. The way it impacts our lives, the way it shapes us, the way it refines us, the way it pushes us towards honesty, integrity, character, purity, Holiness, moral and spiritual standards matter. And they matter not just in individual life, but they matter in our moral life as a society and as a nation. And if someone asks the question, what does it have to offer? Make the illustration and make the point. In addition to that, sometimes will say to me, but Richard, okay, I hear the point you're making in terms of honesty, But Richard, don't you think you simply are old-fashioned and out of touch when it comes to things like physical intimacy between a man and woman? Don't you think that's an old-fashioned value? Don't you think that Christian moral standards in that area are simply no big deal today? Why do we even bother with it? We're much more relaxed and in a casual manner. What... What does that really have to do with life in a 21st century setting? Let me try and explain if I can. 
And I think our response would be this, that physical intimacy in married life is so important because we as Christians, and I certainly find myself having to pick up the pieces when those marriage bonds have not been adhered to and that betrayal and devastation and hurt and pain when an affair takes place it devastates and wounds and leaves with it a debilitating effect on those involved. It is never to be treated lightly because we believe that within marriage there is a bond which we take seriously and we take seriously in vows and we consider those vows to be sacred, not to be treated lightly, but to be cherished and nurtured, to be encouraged, and that love between husband and wife to grow and develop and grow deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper as the years go on. And it is never to be shared with anyone else that is an exclusive nature to it. And that's why we take it seriously, because it is precious and to be cherished and nurtured. And we believe that it is, in fact, a big deal. And when we talk about that kind of love in the most sacred way, to be nurtured, cherished, enjoyed, and rejoiced in. And here is Peter and John being challenged about their faith. And in a 21st century second setting, I think it's highly unlikely that we will ever be arrested for our faith, spend a night in jail, be drawn up in front of the religious authorities, and then asked, what is it you believe? But we will be asked in our neighborhood, in our family, our place of work, why is your faith important? What difference does it make? Isn't it old-fashioned and out of touch? And we say, no, it's the very opposite. It's the most pertinent, relevant lifestyle you could ever hope to have. As we model it, as we live it out in very practical ways. Because I think we would agree that the moral and supernatural values of our nation are at stake. And when we take a strong stance, a gracious stance, a Christian stance, and do so with grace, we are saying life doesn't have to be the way it is sometimes displayed in our culture. There is a better way, a greater way, where joy and thrill and intimacy at that physical level is to be enjoyed, but so much more so there's also a spiritual level to life that we enjoy with Christ. And we enjoy it with Christ. Why? Because we live it out through His enabling grace. And we live it out in the realms of education, and medicine, and finance, and we live it out in retail, and we live it out in construction, and wherever we spend most of our working day, we see the example here from Peter and John, and they said they were with Jesus. What would it be like 
our children and our grandchildren look at us and say, ordinary men and women, but lived out their faith because they had been with Jesus. We live it out this morning around this table. And we gather at this table and we remind ourselves of all that was accomplished at Calvary. That he died for our sin. And we have no right to go back and live in that sinful manner we once lived in. But we live for his glory and his honor. That others might see in us the enabling and power of the Holy Spirit because of all that he achieved for us of what took place at the resurrection and the indwelling power of his spirit. So let me encourage you this week, as you seek to live out your faith, take that moral stand. Highlight moral and spiritual values. Live for him day by day by day in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our place of work, whether it be engineering, education, medicine, law, politics, finance, construction, wherever we spend our day. That others would look at us and see in us the risen Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage this morning. Apply it to our lives this week. And as we come now to gather around this table, allow us please to give thanks for all that you have done and to commit ourselves again to living out our faith for you. Help us, Father, to cherish Nurture, enjoy, and delight in your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray.